Croeso Mawr. In this episode of the Leanwood podcast, we take a close look at what has been and is a deep abuse from the state. Tom Fowler from the Spy Cops campaign explains why all political activists should be concerned. Tom Fowler has been campaigning for years against spy cops. He got involved after he encountered and got to know an undercover police officer who'd infiltrated anarchist and animal rights groups in Cardiff in the early 2000s. Tom, can you tell us how you first got to know Marco and the role he played in the various campaigns that you were involved in at that time? Yeah, so I was, I'm, I guess still technically am, one of South Wales anarchists. Back in the early 2000s, we were an incredibly active network, taking part in direct action, anarchist organising, propaganda spreading, I guess, not just in the South Wales area, but throughout the UK. During that time, we now know that those kind of movements were heavily infiltrated by undercover police officers. It turns out I knew several of them. Principally amongst those was someone I bumped into at first at an Earth First Summer Gathering, which was an annual event of environmental direct action groups. One of those sort of events where, which really is like kind of designed for new people to come along to and get to know, you know, the rest of the networks that exist. Uh, I met him there, kind of got on with him. Lots of the other people in our group got to meet him separately in similar settings at demonstrations. He, at the time, had moved to Brighton, he claimed, to get involved in activism. And he ended up moving to Cardiff because he got on better from a, like, sort of, the kind of person he was, the kind of class that he was from, as was more similar to those of us in South Wales than it was for a lot of the rest of the country. And he got involved with the group locally, so hung around for about four years uh, in Cardiff, where I got you know, very close to him as a, as a friend, I would say, as well as a, as a comrade in, in the movements we were, in, what we, were, we were active in. Yeah. And you subsequently found out that he was an undercover police officer, yeah, so I mean, back in sort of 2010, I think it was, a former undercover police officer called Peter Black, oh, it was, his cover name was Peter Black, was uh, went public, uh, well, he, he gave an interview to The Observer, uh, where he discussed what his undercover deployment w- was about, the kind of groups that he was targeting. At this point, Marco had, had not long left, he'd, he'd been gone for about six months, maybe a bit, a bit more. He claimed he'd, he'd moved to Corfu, which he'd Claimed to have previously lived before he, you know, earlier in life. He came, uh, he, he started sending postcards back at first, but they sort of dried up. Reading this, this interview, it was very clear that those kind of the tactics that was being used, the, the, the withdrawal method particularly was just sounded, just fitted. We got, as a group, we got quite sort of like, we really started to think that this was really believable that he had been an undercover officer. Like a lot of groups around that time, you know, there was a fair bit of paranoia about infiltration from the state, about informers, infiltrators, grasses, undercover cops. And there'd been, you know, there'd been people who'd kind of suggested things about Marco, but there'd been people who had suggested things about pretty much anybody who take this, took this kind of politics seriously during that time. So in the aftermath, we had a meeting and it kind of bounced around the room. We felt maybe it was an echo chamber, but we were all kind of convinced that he, he probably was an undercover cop. A few months later, Mark Kennedy, who was using the cover name Mark Stone, who, who I'd known for many years, who was active in Nottingham, in, in similar sorts of groups, uh, was unmasked while still deployed. This led to a chain of events where a number of officers, numbers of groups around the country who had had suspicions about people were able to get in touch with a Guardian journalist who had a way of confirming that. They basically went to police and said, look, we've got another undercover officer. We're going to put him, his photograph on the front cover of the Guardian tomorrow. Will you give us a statement? They went... Don't put him on the front cover. Give us three days to withdraw him from his new deployment before you do that. 
which is how we got confirmation. We were incredibly lucky. It had only been like 18 months since he disappeared when we got that confirmation. Lots of other people, particularly those who had been deceived into long-term intimate relationships with undercover officers, had spent 20 years looking for them. Not sure, kind of with suspicions, but being dismissed as being paranoid by those outside of that experience. I guess that kind of thing really messes with your head. Yeah, there's definitely a psychological effect that it has on you. It certainly makes you second guess a lot of your personal relationships as well as question like if it's really worth getting involved in activism, if this is the kind of pushback you're going to get. Also, I mean, one thing which really sort of resonated with me is like having had this experience and kind of discovering it, if I was to continue doing the same sort of direct action and political activism that I've been involved in, what was the next thing the police were going to throw at me? Yeah, I mean, it's quite intimidating and it, yeah, it makes you feel kind of stupid for being taken in by it, but also, you know, just scared, really. And questioning everything and not being able to trust anyone anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly a great deal of that. I mean, I think, I mean, given my sort of background, I'm quite lucky I've got plenty of hinterland to retreat into. I think it was particularly difficult for those of us who have got involved in political activism, maybe at like a formative point in their, their development in life and have filled their, all their friendship networks from people they've met through, through politics. For those people, I think a lot of them, I'm, I'm quite lucky. I live like kind of a few hundred meters from where I was born. I, I, I'm part of a community. I know my name. I've, I've got people that I do trust. I think for a lot of people who maybe don't have that, it was a lot more debilitating. Why do you think the police through the special demonstration squad at the time that was being superseded uh, since. But why do you think the police were interested in these kinds of campaigns that you were involved in in Cardiff? So what we've discovered from the, the disclosure that's been, we've managed to be able to get and the leaks basically that have come out of the police, uh, things they've been forced to admit to. These units, starting with the Special Demonstration Squad, then superseded by the National Public Order Intelligence Unit. The SDS was formed in 1968. It was a direct response to the success of the mobilizations against the Vietnam War. They started off with 10 undercover officers. They were specifically designed with looking at street activism. Indeed, like one of the senior officers in the 70s uh, later on uh, said, proudly boasted when you know, asking for more funding, that no demonstration in London took place without there being an overt or covert police presence. It was basically, if you couldn't see a uniformed cop, then there was an undercover cop there. But there is a, I think a lot of it's sort of understanding of what policing, and particularly the policing of protest, but the role, what the role of special branch actually is when it comes to like monitoring and repressing subversion, that the, the deployment of undercover officers into political protest groups, they see it as part of their remit. They see subversion as a crime. They see extra parliamentary politics as a form of criminality. Uh, and they see that they consider the law is not up to the job in terms of punishment. So the way that they can control it is through infiltration and disruption. There's a certain element, of course, of those that that, the, that unit when it was set up, it was as much as it was aimed against the anti-Vietnam War movement. There was an understanding within it that this was part of a wider sort of counterculture that existed at the time, and that they was they're very quick to spread out into the women's liberation movement, then go on to the anti-apartheid movement and the anti-racist movement, anti-fascism. Uh, and really sort of kind of get into get their fingers into all the sort of parts of radical politics of any sort really on the left obviously they didn't infiltrate the right and they, they've never targeted the right in any sort of serious way that we know of mm, that's interesting in itself isn't it i mean the real crime is inveigling yourself as a police officer into the lives of women pretending to have intimate relationships with those 
And it took years to get this injustice recognised, years before inquiries were announced, but they eventually were announced, weren't they? The Met Police launched an internal inquiry in 2011. Theresa May launched a, a linked public inquiry in 2015. What's happened since? It's kind of weird. I mean, it still it still kind of doesn't make a lot of sense why politically she decided to do that. I mean, there, there's some obviously some internal wranglings between her and the police at the time. We saw this, the independent panel on Daniel Morgan was set up with around that same period. The Operation Hearn, which was the internal police inquiry, was very much sort of a response to the scandal, really, of the discovery of the not just that women had been deceived into long term in, intimate sexual relationships by these undercover officers, but in some cases, these officers had fathered children with the women that they targeted in a number of cases. Obviously, these undercover officers were only deployed for a five-year period. Um, once they were withdrawn, there was no connection. There was no way to find them. They weren't real people. Uh, well, I mean, I think uh, one of the other things which really kind of uh, triggered the, the, these investigations was uh, the, the, the getting into people's lives started before the officers even went out into the field. One of the first things that they did, this was a practice which later was abandoned, but from from like after the first couple of years it became standard and and carried on for, for many decades was they they took the identity of a child who had died whilst very young they didn't just take the name i mean often it was that they, they, they would usually find one with the same first name as them similar age different surname uh, and then they would find out about that person you know where they were from where they would have gone to school sometimes they would visit the the homes of the parents just to sort of get an idea of what that person's life would have been like so it wasn't just they took the name but they stole the entire identity of these dead children. Obviously, you know, the, the families of those those children who've more recently found out that their children's identity were, were taken and crimes committed in their name, you know, all sorts of activities taking place, things that they did, they, they, they had this, this ghost life, incredibly, incredibly invasive and horribly upsetting. We have heard from a number of undercover officers who did this practice at the undercover policing inquiry. Uh, the majority of them have shown absolutely no remorse for that activity. One of them uh, expressed a great deal of anger, got quite animated, that um, it, it, he'd be questioned, that it, it'd be suggested that there was anything wrong with that sort of behaviour, and was annoyed with the families for, make, for making a fuss in the newspaper about it uh, and it was certainly for many years very much a boys club um which we've heard kind of you know were bragging about the sexual exploits that they would take part in whilst whilst out in the field certainly other officers and officers outside though even though these were secret units it appeared to be common knowledge within all of special branch about the kind of things that these officers were getting up to certainly there was see very senior members undercover officers who went on to be sort of the head of the unit and um, people like bob lambert who fathered children whilst deployed undercover they were seen as exemplar officers who went on to have very successful careers in the police one of the things we really found is a lot of these former undercover officers went to be very successful police officers assistant chief constables head of the national crime intelligence service then go on to be like academics you know, writing things that prevent that was partially written by by a number of undercover police officers, really kind of launched them onto a successful career within policing services. And this all came out during the inquiry hearings, did it? Yeah, so the majority of this has come in a drip-drip process through the inquiry. I mean, the majority of things that we found at the beginning were done entirely by activists. Often it was kind of putting sort of bits, like piecing bits of information together. So Andy Coles, an undercover officer, using the cover name Andy Davey, who infiltrated animal rights groups in London during the 80s and 90s. We discovered him because his brother is the Reverend Richard Coles, who's a like TV radio celebrity a preacher vicar character. He was in the communards. Anyway, he wrote an autobiography where he talks about his brother being an undercover police officer. So we just kind of looked up, you know, tried to find pictures of his brother, tried to put together with anybody people had had a concern about 
discovered yeah that Andy Davy, who uh, had been yeah, involved in animal rights groups in London, was in fact that same person. I mean, he was at the time when he was discovered, he was police and deputy police and crime commissioner. He's still a Tory councillor in Peterborough. He's been successfully re-elected. While he was deployed, he uh, deceived a woman, a 19-year-old woman, uh, into a long-term sexual relationship, her first serious relationship. He claimed to be in his early 20s at the time. He was in his early 30s. He's, I mean, he's like, he's the governor of a school and like kind of champions the safeguarding of, of, of children and stuff where, you know, I mean. So if, if this has all come out in the inquiry, what are the consequences? No, none whatsoever for him, no, or any of the other individual officers. I mean, beyond a bit of like public embarrassment, we've heard of some of the officers who are still serving when the Operation Hearn, that's the internal police inquiry, was ongoing. A number of them have had some sort of disciplinary procedure internal within the police. It doesn't appear to have affected them that much. You know, there's a, I mean, possibly they kind of lost out on some level of promotion or something. Certainly no one's been stripped of their pension or anything like that. There's a, a Vince Miller, um, Vincent Harvey was his real name. He got his anonymity stripped. I mean, the vast majority of these have anonymity uh, guaranteed by the inquiry for no particular reason, just their, like, their personal embarrassment. The chair of the inquiry, Sir John Mitting, believes that if any of these officers are still married uh, now to the same women that they were married to when they were deployed, because all these officers had to be married with children in order to be able to go out into the field. And early on, they uh, deployed some people who weren't married and it had been a bit messy. It was, they, they found it more difficult to ground them or kind of have that influence over them that, they, that the senior management wanted to have. So they made sure that all officers were married with children before they were put, you know, put out into the field. So there have been few consequences for the actual officers. What about the managers, the people making the decision? Where is the inquiry now? So, okay, so at the moment, we're still on first tranche. There are six tranches to this inquiry. Well, there are three phases, which are break. Well, the three phases are broken up into multiple tranches. We're currently on the first tranche of the second phase. Obviously, as you said, that it was launched in 2015. It was meant to report by now. It's not going to report for many years we've we've only got as far we're about to hear from the managers from the initial phase of the sds which is 1968 to 1982 that will be it was meant to be in november this year it's going to be in the beginning half of next year then after that that will complete the, the first phase of that tranche there's multiple phases after that before we get to sort of more recent things things that i was when i was around when i was being infiltrated likely to come in a few years time so yes we've had we've, we haven't heard from any of the backroom staff yet the senior management management we're never we're never going to hear from the senior politicians who were briefed with this information on a regular basis we should hopefully find out more from the next phase in terms of undercover deployments in the 80s and 90s obviously what we've heard so far it's been quite difficult a lot all the records are handwritten kind of no carbon required paper which badly photocopied i mean if my eyesight wasn't bad enough trying to read these bloody documents has made it much worse but yeah so i mean we, we have we have like a we're getting a lot of understanding but they're certainly not getting any kind of they're not being reprimanded anyway like vincent harvey getting his anonymity with withdrawn was the only sort of thing that's kind of gone wrong for any of them I mean, he, it turned out he was head of the National Criminal Investigation Service, which is like one of the fair, pretty senior role, pretty senior role. Um, he set up the uh, Drug Enforcement Agency in Scotland, had, had a quite a glittering career. You know, there's lots of photos of him on the Internet whilst he did all these other roles. I mean, I saw him give evidence. You can't unless you, you're, you're a core participant, it's quite difficult to actually see the evidence taking place. It's, it, the video is not kept afterwards. He had full anonymity, but. Once we knew his real surname, we know loads about him because he had a public profile. So many of these former undercover officers have a huge public profile. Uh, none of them seem to have had any negative effects at all.
What can we learn from all of this, Tom? I mean, I know the inquiries are still ongoing and there's probably a lot more information that is going to come out at some point. But political campaigners need to have a better understanding of what can happen here. How can we be confident that this is not still going on? How do we know today's environmental groups, for example, are not being spied upon? Are there ways of spotting the signs? How can we help also to campaign for justice for those women who've effectively been raped by the state through this? I mean, I think the first thing I'd say is that there's nothing to suggest this has stopped happening. Though the special demonstration squad was wound up over a decade ago, it was superseded by the National Public Order Intelligence Unit, which in turn was was wound up when the Mark Kennedy scandal broke, and but it was basically absorbed into counterterrorism commands. The, the, the mission, this kind of mission, this, this, these kind of operations still remain a part of policing. I'm sure we, we're fairly sure that the tactics have changed, but certainly if anybody has got any concerns about anyone they believe might have been an undercover officer before that, there's a pamphlet, Is My Friend a Spy Cop?, which is produced by the Undercover Research Group, which is a group of researchers that have come together to look into this issue in detail. That gives like uh, these 12 tests and certainly useful, I think, for anybody who's involved in political campaigning. You can download it for free from the Undercover Research uh, website. I'll give the link at the end. The the information in that, I think, is, is really useful, but obviously things will have changed. I think we're getting into a, an era, we've long now been in, into an era of the neoliberal police force. There's a great deal of, of use of private contractors for lots of different things that the police do. It would be naive not to think that they wouldn't be doing it in this area. The great use, obviously, of, of infiltrators as opposed to undercover police officers, that these can be real people with a real past, with you know real family members, with all those things, that the real hinterland, which the undercover officers didn't have. They, they can have that. So, you know, there's almost certainly infiltration of different types taking place in all sorts of political groups. I don't, I wouldn't believe that the police would just start, suddenly stop seeing this kind of politics as, as, as no longer a form of criminality. They're, they're, they're obviously going to be investigating it on a level to which goes beyond simply kind of turning up to demonstrations or turning up to, to actions. And in terms of campaigning, the Campaign Opposing Police Surveillance is a broad-based group which anybody can affiliate to. If you, your trade union branch can affiliate to it, I would really encourage you to do that if you're in the trade union branch. Which is following the inquiry, obviously the Undercover Research Group is kind of going through a lot of the detail and kind of writing reports on a regular basis. You can find them online, which like details looking at each of the undercover officers and like kind of trying to learn the tactics of, of the way in which they operated. Uh, in terms of the women, there's as uh, they have a support group, the Police Spies Out of Lives, which call demonstrations, take part in campaigns. I would urge anybody and everybody to uh, support that the work they're doing and uh, follow them on social media, follow, find them online, and look at what you know, the latest sort of call to actions are that they're putting out. Uh, I think, like I think, the most key thing is beyond any sort of campaigning against undercover policing, the most imp- the best way to defeat undercover policing is by taking part in political activity, as not being stopped from the kind of political action that you're you're moved to to take part in during the, all the time periods that that I've experienced and that we, I've looked at from the other periods of time when undercover officers were infiltrated into groups. There was a great deal that they stopped happening, but there was a huge amount, a much greater amount, they failed to stop. There were huge victories that our movements have have been able to to get and that the undercover police were right in the middle of. They were trying desperately to stop, but they were incapable of doing so. And I, I think that the key is to keep organising and not be intimidated out of politics by these these facts. I think, you know, if you're going to take this seriously, then the police are going to take you seriously and they're going, they, they, they consider dissent as a crime. So the, you, you're, going to have, you're going to run into these kind of problems and you've just got to accept it as part of the game as, to a certain extent. As that, that's how they see it. 
One of the tactics that I've heard that the police have used within these campaigning groups is to split people, to be divisive, to create rumours about people. What can we learn from that in terms of protecting ourselves as activists? Yeah, and I think that's a really key element. Supposedly, their role was simply to intelligence gather, to to find out information, to better inform policing of public order incidents. That supposedly was their role. But from very early on, we see the disruptive role. We see it from when we've had like former undercovers and activists who were there at the time, giving evidence to the inquiry, we can really piece together the way in which, say, the women's liberation movement in the early 70s was totally destroyed by the deployment of an undercover officer called Sandra, who within a few months of her being involved, she was on the Central Committee uh, denouncing and expelling leading members of that organization. Some women who are still politically active to this day, who were like forced out of the movement like at, at that point, right when it was sort of at, at its beginning. And I, my personal experience with Marco was one of incredible division of pushing the sort of subcultural divisions that exist within political groups, of creating a wedge out of cultural differences and you know societal differences that existed with within amongst people. Yeah, gossip, slander, just creating an unpleasant atmosphere in which to organise together. And I think that like as much as we should be wary of those that people who do that kind of thing as oh they could be undercover cops. Even if they're not undercover cops, it's the kind of activity that people do engage in, I think, within sort of like insular politics, insular activism. And I, I would advise anybody really to like kind of resist that as much as you can, as much as that is kind of just good practice anyway. You don't really like no political movement that is kind of riddled with gossip is is getting anywhere. It's also it is an effective way of resisting undercover policing because these are the kind of things they use in order to split apart groups. I mean, part of the thing that I personally found from taking a step back from activism when I found all this sort of stuff was, ha- was taking place and then stepping back into it in order to campaign against it, against the undercover policing, was that kind of keeping my sort of personal life separate from my political life was probably pretty healthy sort of like divide to have, that um, not to invest so much into it and not being so kind of concerned about like people's personal lives, people's personal opinions about things which don't really matter as opposed to the the big issues which really, really, really do matter. I think that's excellent advice, Tom, and a really good place to conclude this chat. Thank you ever so much for giving us that insight. And thank you as well for all the work that you're doing and the time that you're investing into this really important campaign. I'm sure in the future, we look back at this period with even more horror than we're looking at it now. But I very much hope that the women who've been badly affected by this get the justice that they deserve. Diolchan Vaur. Cheers. Thanks for having me on. You can check out my podcast if you're interested, a Spy Cops Info podcast. I talk about this stuff like for hours on end with lots of other people who are affected. If you, I've spoken about a few different groups. Uh, you can find the podcast and links to all of them and information on all this stuff at spycops.info or check out the hashtag spycops on all social media. Cheers. That's great. Thanks, Tom. I'd like to say Diolch to those who have helped me with this project. Diolch to the team at Audacity, the open source audio editing software used to make this podcast. Diolch to Nick James for the artwork. Diolch to Llewyn Stefan, the creator of the music. And finally, Diolch to all the podcast supporting subscribers. I'm grateful to all of you. I'm looking for support to continue to make these podcasts. You can become a supporting subscriber by checking out my Patreon page. 
You have been listening to the Leanne Wood Podcast.